Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another week. For those of you that missed last week, it was part one of this story. As our 12-month anniversary, we've released my story. The first episode is based on my childhood And this episode today is more about my 30s and 40s, and it has a really different tone to it. Over the past 15 years, my family has had to face some adversity in the medical world. When I was 30, I had a rare brain condition that resulted in a stroke, and it impacts different parts of my brain. And the parts that have been involved has been my eyesight and my short-term memory loss. I talk today about that moment that I realized I was having a stroke when I was standing in my bathroom at home my time in ICU and the road to recovery. We then go on to talk about my children. My eldest daughter, Jess, was diagnosed with a kidney disease when she was two years old and my middle daughter, Katie, started losing a hearing when she was in year four. We were told that there's a potential that she could go completely deaf. I talk about the challenges we've come up against as a family and how we are still navigating our way through this. The last half of the episode talks about my last two years. I've recently been diagnosed with POTS and a connective tissue disorder, and this has had a significant impact on my quality of life. There was 11 months where I I was wondering if I was dying. I know this sounds like a lot, but the most important thing that I want you to know is that even though there's been so many tough moments and chapters in there, my life is so much richer because of it. I get to appreciate the small things in life. Our little family values our time together and the experiences we create as a direct result of these challenges. Both Flinny, who's my hubby, and I are able to role model to our children that anything is possible, that there is no problem that we can't solve and that the most precious thing in our life is each other. Sam, my sensational editor and producer, is interviewing me again. I think he could get a paid gig as a co-host on this show. At the end of this episode, we specifically chat about some of the strategies that have helped me get through these times. This episode is a much faster pace than the last one, and you may all experience the hurricane in action. So hang on for the ride, and I will see you at the end. But I think if you're comfortable, would we like, would you be comfortable moving to the next stage? 
Yeah, when I turn 30. Yeah, when you, when you turn, oh, you know. <laughs> so we've done two decades. Yeah, Let's do the next yeah, two. Yeah, and we're not just talking about turning 30. We're talking about what happened then. It's not just like those videos you see on, on Instagram and Facebook. Oh, it gets so much harder when you turn 30. No. Yes. <laughs> um, we're talking about something actually happening when you turn yes. 30. Before we get into that, exactly, let's set the scene. Let's start with how you were doing before this medical incident we're going to get into. What was happening in your life? Oh, good question. I studied psychology and law at the University of New England here locally in Armidale, and then I went travelling around Australia for a couple of years to finish my degree externally and to work. I started off working in hospitality, which is a great opportunity. I worked in some of the biggest hotels that we have in this in Australia, Coogee Bay Hotel in Sydney, Ocean Beach Hotel in WA, the Storybridge Hotel in Brisbane. Loads of fun, great experience, met fabulous people on that journey. I then came back and did I was studying at QUT. I mentioned in the last episode that I had planned to do forensic psychology and, and hopefully work for the feds. And I came back here to get higher marks so that I hadn't um, could go to any university in the country. But then changed my mind, changed my course of direction, and went to work for Pass Paley Pearls up in Darwin. We used to fly out to sea for anywhere between two or five weeks at a time. I was up there for about eleven months, I think nine to eleven months. And where the boats were situated was the very top of the Kimberleys. You know that corner between Western Australia and the Territory. And it is the most beautiful country. Like the animals are insane. The crocodiles, the seahorses, the sharks, the fish. We used to go fishing once a week or once a fortnight on a Saturday afternoon. We'd get the Arvo off and we'd take the boats out a little bit further from the main boat and spend a few hours fishing. Uh, Unbelievable. I came back over east and did some work in Brizzy. I worked on the streets and I did some work in the jails as well, the juvenile jail and the women's and men's jail. And then I moved to Dubbo where I worked in a mental health rehab and then moved into a position that was probably my favourite that I've done and that was as an outreach youth counsellor where I worked with kids that were 8 to 21, homeless or at risk of homelessness and mostly in the space of domestic violence and sexual assault. That position involved a lot of crisis work, as you can imagine, but there was also elements of clinical therapy in there. And that's when I did my postgrad in emotionally focused therapy through Sydney during those couple of years when I was in that role. What I took away from that role and when I reflect on that time was the resilience that I saw in these kids, that some of them were living in the worst environments in toxic, dangerous situations, many of them on the streets, but they found a way and found the strength to show up for themselves every day. Some of them bought the best attitude I've ever seen by anyone. You know, I think about a young a young person that I worked with that used to come to my office every morning, pick up her school uniform and go to school drop it off in the afternoon so I could wash it so she could come back the next day and get it because she lived on the street. She had no washing machine. She didn't know where her next meal was coming from. She didn't know where she was sleeping that night. But she chose to get an education and did everything she could in her power to make that happen. I mean, incredible, right? Another day I had the police knock on my door at work to say, 
that this young person had been missing for three days. And I was so shocked because I said to them, they were just here at a counselling session. You know, the fact that they still wanted more out of life, that they had that ability to bounce back no matter what adversity was showing at them, just blew my mind. The other lesson that I took from that experience was really understanding how important it is that we have a primary caregiver show us nurture or love, whether that be your parents, a teacher, an auntie or uncle, a grandparent, a neighbor. If you don't have that experience of someone showing you that nurture at a young age, it is almost impossible for you to turn around and find a way to have self-love self-worth and to nurture yourself. You need to have experienced that in order to be able to turn it inwards and show it to yourself, which is often why we see with particularly anyone that's experienced huge amounts of trauma is that if they haven't had that person showing them other ways, how are they meant to turn it inwards? And so I always think about that now, you know, how can I show someone else more nurture, more love, more acceptance in this world so that I might be that one person that can help them learn how to turn it inwards? I fell pregnant with our first little baby and that was a really interesting experience. I was so passionate about the work I was doing with the young people, but I was so excited about becoming a mom, yet I wasn't sure how those two worlds were going to meet. I wasn't sure what life would look like if I wasn't working with all of these young people that needed my help as well. But what I realized in hindsight is that there's a time and a place and a stage to do that kind of work. And once my kids hit the ground, it wasn't the work for me. When you're a therapist, you need to be able to commit 110% to the person in the room. You need to commit to yourself, to the person sitting across from you, to your reactions that don't belong in the room. And once my kids were on the ground, I wasn't able to do that. I had three babies in three and a half years and they all had reflux. So there was many sleepless nights. My husband was on call. Uh, He worked two to three nights per week, could get called out anywhere between two to five times a night and then had to show up for work the next day. I was writing my thesis. I was so wired and exhausted. Then during my second pregnancy, we decided to move back to Armidale and it really felt like it was the right place for us to settle. That's where I went to uni. That's where my husband was from. And it felt like the town we wanted to raise our kids in. So we had our second and third baby back here. But in between those two, I was training at a gym and the PT at the time came up to me and said, would you consider doing your certificate in fitness? And I was, it had never crossed my mind. And when I thought about it, when I spoke to my husband, I was like, that's just another vehicle that I can use to help people. Like my passion is to help others and PT is just another way of doing that. Counseling, therapy, PT, coaching, they're all just vehicles on how I can work with other people. So I had a look at what that would involve and all it was was a six-month TAFE course. And as we have established in interview one, I am a bit of a nerd burger and I I love growth and I love learning. So yeah, I was like, yep, let's go and do this. Then I went on and did my Cert 4, which is for personal training, and an opportunity presented itself. One of the other gyms in town said, if I came and opened a business in that gym, I could have access to all the equipment, to a room, and to all the clients for free. 
at no point in my life had I considered owning a business or starting a business. So being a bit of an opportunist, I was like, okay, what do I need to know here? Who do I need to talk to? What information do I need to make a decision? And I had a mate at the time, Obes, and I rang him and I was, he's really good with business. And so can you come over? I want to have a chat. And we sat on my couch and we talked through the scenario. And, you know, he just pointed out it's low risk, high reward. Why would I not do it? And that is how I started in the world of business from that moment. It was like, okay, let's do this. Six weeks later, I opened a business. I was running boot camps out of the back of a school oval with 22 of my mates. I mean, who wouldn't love that? Helping your friends to break through limits and barriers they never thought they could. I was so excited to be doing this. So, what you're saying is you, you know, didn't have many balls in the air, not much going on. It was no. pretty relaxed. No. <laughs> Yeah, not much going on. I had finished my thesis at this point though. And then I was upstairs getting ready to go and run that boot camp in our bathroom. And I got a a headache on my left and pins and needles down my right. And when I say headache on my left, it was in that moment, I knew that my life was in danger is how I describe it. It was a headache that was an alarm bell that you thought, I'm in deep shit. I screamed out to my husband. He says when he got up there, I was on the bathroom floor and his first thought was stroke and then he's like, she's 30 and she's fit, no way. I remember my first thought was stroke. I don't remember what I thought after that, but that I definitely crossed my mind. I remember driving to town where 5K's out and looking at the speedo and thinking he's going to kill me because it was the fastest I'd ever seen the car go. I reckon he was about 150K's an hour and I was thinking – he's going to kill me. And we had the three kids in the back of the car. So three kids under four. And I'm thinking, he's got to slow down. But I didn't have words. I couldn't speak that I remember. By the time I got to hospital, I couldn't recognize people. I couldn't recognize my mom, his work colleagues. And being that young and that fit, they thought I was having a migraine. And the next morning, the doctor came in to talk to me and I said, I can't see you. And he said, can you see me now? I was like, oh, yeah, there you are. And then he stepped back. I said, I can't see you. And he was like, shit, (laughs) we need an MRI right now. And so I went down, had an MRI, showed up that I had two strokes. They flew me to Sydney to RPA. And I like it's hilarious if you hear me talk about this and hear my husband talk about it, two very different experiences. And we both have (laughs) lots of laughs talking about what's accurate and what's not. So I'm giving you my version of this much better than his version. (laughs) So we end up in RPA and I was in the neuro ICU ward for a couple of weeks and they said that I had this brain condition that lasts for four months of your life, reversible vasoconstriction syndrome, reversible being the great word here, in that most people have migraine-like symptoms and it's reversible. So whether they have a stroke symptom or whatever, it's reversible. I was in the bottom 5% that had strokes and – They got me to Sydney and got me on drugs to stop any more from happening. Now, my memory of this is that I would just be in the hospital bed. My body would be convulsing. I couldn't see. Sometimes I didn't know who was who. I would feel this tingling all over my body, lots of jerking movements. Flinny talks about he got the kids on the plane my mum and his mum, him, all to Sydney, stayed in hotels. They would rock up every day. The doctor said he wasn't allowed into ICU until eight, but the doctors did their rounds before eight. Mm. So the damage to my brain meant I had short-term memory loss and I lost vision in both quadrants of my eyes, top quadrants. So they would tell me the information. I had no memory. 
So I'd have no idea. So Greg would come in at eight and I would be like, I don't know if the doctors have been. I actually used to be like, why am I here? For anyone that's seen 50 first dates, that was my experience. I looked and sounded like this in ICU. I couldn't remember what I ate for breakfast or if I had underpants on or if I'd seen my husband that day. I knew I had kids. I knew I had a husband. I knew my previous life, but I knew nothing about the current situation. And so my husband like really pushed hard and was able to get in earlier so that he was there to hear what the doctors were saying. One of my really fond memories of being in hospital was that, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. (laughs) Do it. You're allowed to leave ICU. Like I was the only person that could get up and stand and walk around. I remember I used to walk to the bathroom and think, no one else can walk here. So we were allowed to walk around the hospital. So us being us, of course, Greg took me out on a date every lunch and we would go up the street and eat at all these fabulous restaurants, totally not allowed. But for me, that was really helpful for my recovery because it gave me lots of stimulus. When I think back to what it felt like in ICU, it it's really um, kind of grey with timing. I felt like I was only there for maybe a week maybe 10 days, but I was actually in hospital for a lot longer than that. But because of my short-term memory loss, it was really it's really hard for me to recall that time. I think it was so much harder for the people around me, my husband, my mom, my my parent-in-laws, like they were the ones sitting at my bed. They were the ones taking in all the information. But for me, in that moment, all I had to focus on was one day at a time, getting up, learning as much as I could about getting stronger, activating my brain, becoming more functional in the world. My husband, on the other hand, had to navigate three kids in Sydney, under five, in hotels, with family, all the phone calls that he was getting, not being allowed in to see the doctor, how he was going to feed the toddlers, the toddlers are screaming, everyone was tired, the anxiety about what our future looked like, what was happening with his work. I don't know how he did it. And if he was here, I can only imagine what he might say about how challenging and chaotic that time was. But for me, it was like I could only focus on one day at a time. I could only think about the next hour or that afternoon. I couldn't see three weeks in the future, three months, three years. I didn't really think about the past, um, not until I got out of hospital, I could only think about that hour and that moment. So I might have a physio appointment coming up and it's like, what did I need to do in that physio appointment to move myself forwards? Or how do I stand on my leg for 30 seconds longer? Or how do I fuel my body so that my brain and my body has everything it needs on board to be able to do the next thing, to be able to do that physio appointment or to be able to go for a walk or whatever it is, to be able to try and do mathematics, have I fueled it correctly? I remember thinking a lot of the time there was a nurse standing by my bed 24-7 and I'd always think about like what questions can I ask this nurse that's going to help teach me more about this condition so that I understand what I'm facing here? You know, like what, what do I need to know? And what information do they have that I haven't received yet? I tried to think about who in my world had experienced anything like this and what are the things I could ask them about their journey. After ICU, I don't, like I said, I don't really remember how long I was there. And that was where there's, we were in a big circle. All the patients were in a big circle around the nurse's unit that was in the middle. So there was these little curtains that you pull around. But most of the time I could see 
the nurse's station in the middle and all the beds all around me. It was quite open and you're quite exposed in that position. Then we moved up to, I think it's called the neuro ward. And that was where there was three other people in the room with me and the nurses came and went. They weren't by your bed every moment. I was placed in a room with three other men that had also had strokes. And that was really challenging in itself because I remember waking up one night and one of the men had just gotten out of bed naked and was just standing there about trying to find the toilet. He was unaware of where he was or that he didn't have clothes on. But as you know, I have a history of sexual assault. That was really confronting for me when I was already in a very vulnerable position. So, you know, I had to talk to the nurses about that. And I think there's some real space there to have deeper conversations with our patients. I understand when you're in hospital, it's often about life and death. It's often about how do we get you out of this crisis zone. But in a situation like that, that wasn't very beneficial for my rehab and recovery to be in a room with three other men that had had strokes at that time. I really needed the most nurturing environment I could be in so that I could be in the best possible position to soak up my rehab, to learn what I could learn, to create the energy that I needed to get through this. So that was you in ICU. Obviously, you weren't there forever. I imagine rehab came next. What was that like? Um, So down in Sydney, it was all about survival for me. It was all about um, how do I stay alive? And then once we came back to Armidale, I don't know how many weeks I was in hospital here. We ended up leaving because they kept changing me rooms. So I was in like the peed ward and then I was in the cardio ward and then I was in the, like they just kept moving me rooms. It was really hard for someone that has short-term memory loss. So I had to regain kind of where I was. I'd get really confused. I'd get really upset. So that's why I ended up leaving the hospital quite early. But what I do remember in hospital was my husband and my mom coming in one day with our three kids who are still under four, remember, with a hairbrush. And they were like, everyone has tried. No one can get through the kid's hair do you think you might have time today while you're in hospital (laughs) to do all three kids? (laughs) And I was like, yes, hours. It takes hours to do my kids' hair, right, when they were little. Mm. But that's one fond memory I have. And of all the beautiful people that used to come up and visit, the rehab team used to say to me things like, you know, you've got to stop trying so hard. Like you've got to to slow down. And, And I remember saying to them, look, I get why you're saying that. I have a psych background. I'm a PT. But one thing that you need to know about me is my greatest strength is my determination and my will to survive and my will to to get through hard stuff. And so I said, like, if you're not prepared to come on this journey with me, then I think you need to move to the side because I have everything to fight for. I have three kids at home. My baby was on the boob. I said, I have a husband that loves me at home. Like, I want to be there and I'm going to do everything within my willpower to get me there. And if that means getting up at 5 a.m., learning to stand on one leg, if that means every time I clean my teeth I put my heel to toe and do a stand-up dance so that my balance gets better, if that means reading one word on a page because that's all I can do, I will do it and I will do it until the cows come home because I'm so clear on my why and it makes those hard days easier. Like there were hard days, but I would just come back to where do I want to be and why is this important to me? And that would just get me through those moments. When I got home, (laughs) that was very interesting. 
The first thing I remember was getting home and my house being spotless and me looking around thinking, this is not my home. <laughs> I know I've had a stroke, but I was never this tidy. And then I've heard since heard the girls went over to clean it up and one of the girls actually stopped everyone and said, you do know this is going to confuse her, right? Like you do know <laughs> that we can't clean everything. <laughs> so that's really, that's one fond memory. And also Armadale, the community, they rallied and they, we had meals breakfast, lunch, and dinner for, I don't know, maybe four months until we didn't need it anymore every day. Mm. Like they would, it was phenomenal the support that we had. During that time, there were some pretty funny moments. I had a sign on my front door that said, don't go out, you have three children. I knew I had kids. I didn't know they were with me. So we found our baby on Bundara Road where cars go 100Ks an hour crawling out because I'd left the door open while I pruned the roses. Who knew? Who knew I had a one-year-old in the house? You know, I used to go up and try and read with my daughter those spot books. You know the books? Do you remember spot where it's that little dog and it's got like three words on the page? So she used to try and help me sound them out, my oldest child. She'd be like, mum, it's like the, the, and I'd be like, okay. And I remember thinking I I need to go to kindergarten with her because – I need to learn from the beginning again. Like back then I didn't know I was going to be okay. I didn't know that I'd get to where I am today. You don't know that and that can be one of the hardest things when you're in a situation like that. If someone had that crystal ball, you could sit back and relax but no one has that and the only person that can kind of fight the fight is you. And so, again, I just was like, let's just do what we can step by step. I may not be able to do it today. Let's focus on the one thing I can do. What is one thing I can do today that's going to get me one step closer to where I want to be? And that was kind of the attitude I embraced throughout the whole rehab. When I think back through my rehab, there were some pretty tough challenges in there. I wasn't allowed to drive for about six to nine months after I got home um, because of my short-term memory loss and how dangerous it could be with me on the road. (laughs) For the first three months post-hospital, they wrapped me up in cotton wool. There were so many things that I felt like were restricted from my everyday life. Things like I wasn't allowed to drink alcohol, wasn't allowed to exercise, anything that could really be a trigger for my brain condition. I wasn't allowed cold and flu tablets. I also wasn't allowed to be left alone at home because I could just turn the stove on to say cook pasta for dinner and then walk away forgetting that I was in the middle of cooking. So it would have been so easy for me to burn down the house. My family had a 24-7 roster of people caring for me. For the first year, I would have slept every single day. I had difficulty being around my children and noise or lights As you can imagine, the pressure that put on my husband to try and keep three kids under five quiet. He often talks about taking them out for drives on the farm and he'd go for hours at a time just so I could have peace and quiet or have a sleep. I had headaches every single day for the first two years and some of them were so debilitating. I also had pseudo seizures. This is where I would collapse to the ground and start convulsing. I think it was my second year of recovery that They started to get few and far between, but instead of happening at home because I was out and about more, they were in public places, which I used to get really embarrassed about. I used to feel a lot of shame around them. I remember having one on the netball court, one at a running event at the finish line in front of half of Armadale. Uh, I had another one up at the pharmacist and that one resulted in them having to call an ambulance and my three children were there with me at the time and it was on really close to Christmas. So they couldn't get me off the ground. Every time I'd stand up, I'd have this another pseudo seizure and 
I remember asking the nurses at the hospital and bawling my eyes, just being like, can I please go home to my kids? I want to be there when they open their Christmas presents on Christmas morning. So they're like, there's some of those challenging times that I think about. Probably the hardest part of the rehab journey for me was not being the mum or the wife that I wanted to be. I was also grieving for the girl I once knew before my stroke. I felt like a foreigner in my own mind. I remember breaking down one night. I was sitting there at the kitchen bench with my husband and it was in that moment that I realised my whole life I had had this little mantra since I was a little girl that said, you can hurt me but you can't touch my mind. And that was like one of my big strategies for resilience as a child. I was like, touch me, but you can't touch my mind. The stroke took my mind. I felt broken. And it wasn't until I realized that and once I was able to connect those dots, then my rehab actually made a significant jump. You know, I started to, my balance started to get better and and my patience started to come back. And I really started to notice some gains because that one sentence that I'd been telling myself my, that whole life that now made me feel like I was broken was inhibiting and stopping my rehab. I also would say, and this is still really hard for me, is forgetting people's names. I used to be such a people person and now I can meet someone one day and not have a clue if I've met them the next. Like the best example was earlier this week I was at the coffee shop and this lady comes up and she's like, hi, Ali, how are you going? And all I kept thinking was I've never seen you before in my life. There's like I don't have the skeleton or the framework in my brain to go back and find those old memories. So when something presents itself to me and it's like it's just this blankness, it's like behind my eyes there is a blank wall and I can't kind of go back and track my way back to a memory. I mean, for you, maybe if you're like, oh, did I? where did I leave my shoes? And you might think, oh, I was playing tennis last night. I got home. I went to the shower. Oh, they're probably in the bathroom. That tracking back through your memory, that's what I don't often don't have the ability to do and I certainly didn't have the ability to do in those first few years. The greatest lesson that I've learned from my recovery would be that no one can do it for me. Everyone was there to support me in every way possible, but the only person that could get me through that chapter of my life and out the other side was me. And the only way that I could do that was with my attitude and my discipline. I had to know what my priorities were. I had to know what was important to me and I had to keep it in the forefront of my mind throughout the whole rehab process. And then I had to get to work doing everything I possibly could in that moment. And people don't realize you've got to look after the carers. You have to look after the carers. They're the ones that are worried for the person in the bed. They're the ones that are giving all the information out to the community. They're the ones that have got the fear for the future. They're the ones that are managing the right now. Like so much is going on for them. And I think often we forget about that and we're just looking at the person going through it. So big shout out there to anyone that has been a carer for anyone at any point in time in their life. It's a big role and it's a tough role. And, you know, you often go unrecognized for what you do. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, 
but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance, and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. So, obviously, you kept working on yourself because you are determined as hell and uh, an unstoppable force of nature. And then everything was fine and there was no other issues and the story ends here, right? There's- <laughs> yeah, that's it. That is it. No. <laughs> no. The next chapter would have started when I was in ICU. I got this really harebrained idea that I was going to become a triathlete. Now, let me preface that with I'd never ridden a bike. Like I rode horses when I was a kid, not bikes. So I, I had never been on a road bike. I hadn't, From what I can remember, I'd never really swum in the ocean, maybe as a kid, but like you go out and you paddle, but I never like did an ocean swim. And I'd only started running maybe eight months earlier and could run 5Ks, but I was going to be a triathlete. And my husband was like, mate, you can't read and write. I think we should focus on something else. I was like, no, no, I got this. I got this. So what do you do if you want to be a triathlete? You need a bike, right? So we were on a holiday in Port Macquarie with the three kids. And I said to my husband, I've rung the coach. There's a coach here. She works with Australian athletes, I'm going to go have a chat to her about the bike. And he was like, whatever, off you go. Went and had a chat to her. She said to me, there's a shop up the road. Tell them that you know me. Go in and they'll get your bike. So said to my husband, we're driving back to Armidale. It's in Port Macquarie. We're driving back to Armidale, which is about a four-hour drive. Three young children, maybe under four or five, in the back seat. Everyone's buckled in, end of the holiday. And I said, oh, just pull over here. Just pull over here. We go into this bike shop and my husband is like, oh, my God. Four hours later, I walk out with a bike, <laughs> bike pants, a bike rack, and a very cranky husband. I don't think he's wanted to divorce me many times, but at that moment, he definitely was questioning his life choices. Oh, and a trainer, because you need a trainer to put a bike on, because I was too scared to go on the road. So I got home, I put the trainer on in the kitchen, and I get on this bike every day. And I was too scared to go out on the road, too scared to take it off the trainer, because I'm like, I can't do this very well. Started running, started cycling. Then I w- went and did the, what we have a mini triathlon here in Armidale that's really small. It's like four laps of a 25-meter pool, 10K bike ride, 2K run or 4K run. So I did that and I was like, I can swim. This is fine. I hadn't done any swimming training. Jumped in the water, did my swim, came up. No one was there. I was like, where is everyone? I actually thought I could swim, right? I thought I was a good swimmer. Nope. Everyone had gone, including the spectators, four laps. Oh, that's how slow I was. Wow! <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know about being a triathlete. So I rang my babysitter at the time and I said, I need you to coach me to swim. She was a swimming coach. So then I got in the water and she taught me to swim. Two years after my stroke, 
the Coffs Harbour Triathlon was on, the Olympic Triathlon, and I drove down. At this point in time, and you'll hear this later in the story, my daughter's kidney disease was really bad. She was really sick and we were going to Sydney to Children's Hospital the next day. And my husband's like, you can't go and do this triathlon. I was like, I am going. This is part of my recovery and I've been training for this. I'm going down to do the triathlon and I'll meet you in Sydney at Westmead. So I drive to Coffs Harbour. I get there. I go to the ocean. I look at it. And I think, shit, I have never swum in the ocean. Shit. So I ring my husband <laughs> and say, do you think I should get in? Do you think I should have a go this afternoon? He's like, mate, you, there is nothing you can do this afternoon that is going to help you tomorrow. <laughs> Just get in on the day. So, <laughs> so I'm standing on the beach, 5.30 in the morning, freezing cold with my goggles and cap on. And they say, Go. And I run into the water and I put my head in and I had prepped myself for this moment. I was like, if you see a shark, this is what you do. If you see a stingray, this is what you do. No one told me that sometimes you can't see anything. So when my head went down, I couldn't breathe because it was so cold. I couldn't see anything. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like who thought this was a good idea? Not your husband. <laughs> no, not my husband or my sick daughter. So the whole way around I went back to what the coach told me, one, two, bubble breathe and a mantra that I still use to this day and that is you cannot have a stroke and get eaten by a shark. It's impossible. So that's what I told myself for the whole swim. Got out, got on the bike. By the time I got to the run I was sobbing. I was bawling my eyes out. I reckon everyone that ran past me, because a lot of people did, was like, is this girl okay? I was so proud. I was so like, I was crying for me, but I was crying for my daughter that was so sick. I was like, I want her to know. It makes me cry now. But I want her to know that you can do hard things. Like I want her to know that no matter how shit life gets, you can still do hard things and it is okay. And so I cried for 10 Ks. And I stumbled across the finish line and I was proud as punch. And I love my husband. You guys all know that. But he did forget to ask me how the event went. He did forget to ask because our daughter was so sick. And I still hold that against him today. I'm like, you never asked. You never asked me how I went. <laughs> so that was part, that was my recovery. I think that was like getting focused on something, training for something, achieving every time I went out. It was a really huge part for me mm. in recovering from my stroke. That's a pretty big like goal to work towards. Pretty good like thing to focus on to help you get through. I mean, obviously there's still things you'd be working on because I know I talked to you and you're like, I can't remember my short-term memory still met. <laughs> but would you say reaching that point is a, a point that you were then able to look back and be like, cool, I've made it to a certain level of recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely was like, if I don't get any better, I'm okay where I'm at. Okay. And that's kind of an attitude that I do take a lot in life. It's like, I don't need to be the best. I don't need to get to the very end. Maybe that's that 90% girl that my husband talks about, but it was enough. It was like, I can run, I can cycle, I can swim, I can be a mum. I can go back to work. Like if I don't improve any more from here, it's okay. I did go and do a half iron though, so maybe that's a lie because then I went on to like a a six-and-a-half-hour event, which I'm pretty sure they would say not to do if you've had a stroke. I mean, I'm not a medical professional, but yeah, (laughs) probably. In 36 degrees heats. Yeah. Yeah, so um, maybe that's not true. But, I, yeah, I really do strive on setting a goal and working. It's It's not the end result for me. It's the discipline it takes to get there. 
It's the learning. It's the relationships built along the way. It's the stepping outside your comfort zone. It's the growth that happens in the moment. They're all the things that I get addicted to rather than the actual event. I could not compete on any one of those days. My mm. husband actually told me he's never coming anymore because we go to the competition and I stop and help someone. He's like, if you stop and help one more person, <laughs> I've driven all this way to watch you compete and I've never once seen you cross the line by yourself. <laughs> Usually you're with someone that's 90 being like, here, I'll walk with you or carrying someone on your back or you know like I doing cartwheels on the course he's like can you just run I'm like but I'm enjoying myself Mm. this isn't the part that's important for me he's like well why am I here (laughs) yeah there's a lot to take away from that like it sounds like you've gotten a lot of lessons is there a toolkit for your own care like obviously you've got a toolkit what lessons do you think from that recovery phase have you got That you decide the attitude that you wake up with, that's the number one thing. When you put your two feet on the ground in the morning, no one else decides that for you and you can pick it. Okay. That would be the biggest thing for me. I'm probably turning that into a quote image for this podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you can, um, even if you need to have a little chat to yourself before you get out and say it's a tough day, it's okay, but you know, today I'm going to work on X or today I'm just going to do Y or today I'm going to look after myself. But yeah, you get to choose. No one else gets to pick that for you. And also life is actually rich with adversity. (laughs) Like you get to experience all colors of the rainbow, your highest of highs, your lowest of lows, everything in the middle. When the sun is shining, When the grass is green, when my kids are laughing and my husband's holding my hand and we're walking around the property, I can really soak that moment up. A lot of people are like, oh, it's the same day. You like they get resentment towards the grind. For me, the grind is like where the magic is. When we're not in hospital, when shit's not coming at us, I call it the Bondi buses. You know, when one leaves the station, the next one's coming along. So when there's no Bondi buses and we're just sitting there and taking a breath, they're the magical moments and that's something that's really important to understand with adversity is it comes with a gift even though it sucks. But there's more Bondi buses to come. You mentioned before your daughter's illness. That's not just a throwaway thing. That's something pretty big. Do you want to start at the beginning of that for us? Did you say, do I want to cry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you want to take- Sorry, I misheard you. Is that what you said? Yeah, I, I did mean to say, um, do you want to take a 30-minute cry break because this is going to be heavy? <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, when we do talk about the Bondi buses, I, I do throw that comment away, but it, some days it feels like that. Some days it feels like when one leaves a station, the next one's just parking its big ass in, in there ready for us. So my daughter got a kidney disease when she was two which the disease itself isn't problematic. She should grow out of it um, in her teenage years, but the medication she's on is extremely problematic. It's very toxic. She's quite reactive to it. We're running out of medications. What it looks like for her when she gets sick, we're very fortunate. Like I go to Children's Hospital in Sydney and I sit there and I see these tubs with kids' names on it or I see these kids that are in having immunotherapy without their parents there because they're having it so often their parents have to work and that's in those moments I realise how lucky I am even though it's hard. But when Jess is sick, it's really hard. Like she probably gets sick once every nine to 12 months and what that looks like for us and our family is that she could start to put on 
anywhere between 10 and 14 kilos in a couple of days. There's been times where her skin has split. Often throughout the year, she can't get up the stairs to her bedroom. So we make her a bed downstairs. She's on crutches. She's in wheelchairs. She doesn't really have a good quality of life. She barely gets up or her joints hurt. That's when she's sick. And then we start the drug treatment. And then she has reactions to the drugs. So she might have stomach cramps where she's screaming or pain in her legs where she can't walk or headaches that she can't handle. At the moment, she can't, which is fine, she can't eat gluten or lactose, but that's just an example of the drug. There's ones that she can't go out in the sun. There's ones that she can't eat certain types of food. And she's been on so many, like a concoction. There was one stage that she was taking 12 tablets at night and nine in the morning. There were drugs to counteract the drugs that were to counteract the drugs, you know. Let's put this in place because she's got insomnia. Let's put this in place because she's got anxiety because of this drug. Now that she's not sleeping and we're doing the anxiety, now she's going to have stomach issues. So let's put this in place for the stomach issues. And now she's going to have this. And so let's put this drug in place for this. And, you know, I really do want to be careful when I say this because we really are lucky. We get moments that we can breathe. Mm. But what happens for me is that it means that when she crashes and when we crash as a family, the lows go very low. It's like we get so much hope and we're in that at the moment. We've seen her jump on the trampoline for the first time in a couple of years with her sisters, not just jump, get back on the next day and jump again. Like I saw her jump four days in a row, which I haven't seen for years, right? So those moments we cherish and and so my hope is back, you know. I can see her future. I can see her slowly getting back. Last week she missed about 14 weeks of school in year seven. In her junior school she missed so many. The schools, I can't shout out to them enough. They have been phenomenal. They have helped us raise our children, all of them, because what happens when you have a child that has a chronic illness is everyone experiences it in a different way. My middle child feels like no one sees her or hears her, and we don't. When Jess is sick, we don't see or hear any of the other children, and you'll hear a story about that in a moment. My youngest says to me often, Mum, I wish I was sick. Why am I the only one in my family that's not sick? Why am I so different? Mm. Like we as adults can be like, mate, you're lucky, but in her eyes, she's not lucky. In her eyes, she's the only one that's different. Yeah, so Jess goes and gets this treatment and then we were really fortunate. We had a really good drug for a couple of years, maybe more than that actually, probably six years, five years, and um, we've just, we can't use that drug anymore. So we're back to the drawing board and we're trialing new drugs. And as I said, she's doing really well at the moment, but it's really tough. It's really tough. Your relationship suffers because you don't have the energy to put into it. The fear is so high. Like there have been so many times I didn't think my daughter was going to make it. Last year was probably the worst. And, you know, we talked to the school about it. We talked to our friends about it. And we're like, we think this is, you know, we're, we're coming to that pointy point now. And then she gets better and I feel like a hypochondriac. Sounds, you know, like even as I say that, I'm like, oh, why do I think that? But I do. That's what I tell myself. Like why will people believe you when you go through this cyclic you know, she's really sick. Oh my God, everything's falling apart. And then, oh, she's fine. She's really sick. Everything's falling apart. Oh, she's fine. I'm like, people are going to think that I just make this stuff up, mm. you know? So there's a whole lot of challenge that comes with that, with family dynamics, with trying to like, you know, any mum or dad out there that has children that have a chronic illness would probably resonate with not being the parent you want to be. You don't end up 
role modeling the way you want to role model. You don't get end up prioritizing what you want to prioritize. You you just survive. You just get through each hour, each moment, each day. And, you know, it's one, like I said, with adversity, there's gifts. It's one of the gifts that we've been given is that we now understand how important experience is. And so for gifts for our children, it's always about what experience they can have. When things are tough, like we went to Melbourne last year, just in a wheelchair. I was really sick. I could barely walk, but we all bundled in the plane because the girls hadn't been on a plane other than when I had my stroke. And we went to Melbourne and we ate out and we looked around the shops and we had really fun experiences and came back. Like that cost us an arm and a leg, but it was about if we're going to lose one of our family members, what do we want everyone to remember? And we need to create experiences. So that's one of the really beautiful things that has come out of all the medical stuff that we've had. Greg and I are so crystal clear on our priorities, on how we want to parent, what's important, what we want to have around us, who we want to have around us, how we want to spend our time, how we want to spend our money. That's gotten easier and better and refined over time with all of these little incidents. Now, while that's a whole journey with one daughter, you did mention we had another story about your middle daughter as well. You know, she feels seen and unheard and she absolutely has every right to feel that way. A really good example of that is when my husband took long service leave because we were just, he was exhausted, I was exhausted, he'd worked core for 20 years, I was running three companies at that stage, we had our daughter that was sick, this was post-stroke, you know, like we lived a pretty chaotic busy life by choice by choice we loved it but we were burning the candle at both ends and um I just said to him let's do some life admin let's get the teeth checked they all need braces let's get their eyes checked they all need glasses let's get the hearing checked one of my middle child was going deaf she lost something like 14 or 17 sounds of the English language and we had not noticed at all not even slightly like We had once said to the teachers, oh, Katie says she can't hear properly. And they're like, she's doing so well in class. She plays musical instruments. She was playing her cello with vibration. She couldn't hear cars. When she first got her hearing aids and she walked out, she was like, what's that noise? We're like, what noise? She's like, that noise. That noise. Like, cars? She's like, they make a sound? (laughs) We were like... How have we missed this? Her favourite animal's a giraffe. She can't hear that sound at all. You can play it on your phone and she can't hear it. She's got low-frequency bilateral hearing loss. And so they said to us she could lose her hearing. She could lose it this week, next month, in a year, but we think she's going to lose her hearing completely. So this was in the midst of my mum had just been diagnosed with dementia Jess had been incredibly ill and we'd been up in Brisbane at the hospital. We just got told that my daughter had lost her hearing and so she was, we were now learning sign language. You guys can't see, but my favourite one is a turtle. And, you know, I think that for me that was one of the hardest pills to swallow. I I really broke down then. I really was like, I can't keep fighting the fight. Like it really undid me as a parent. I don't know whether it was the hearing or whether it was just that I just, I'd run out of steam, I'd run out of puff. I was like... I just, I don't know how much fight I have left in me to keep doing this. We moved them schools. My beautiful little daughter that's super shy got up and gave a slideshow to everyone to say, hi, my name is Katie and I can't hear properly and this is what's really helpful for me and this is what I would love you to point out and do. And so we had like she had little thing that she hooked onto a belt that she'd pull up to show the PE teacher that she couldn't hear him and we had these little blocks on her desk because she was so quiet. We used to call her the loudest quiet kid we knew. This was before we realised she was going deaf because when there's a snake at our house, you know it, right? Because Katie has this bellow 
that you would hear, the neighbours would hear it. I'm pretty sure they could count on their hands how many snakes have been in our house. But she doesn't talk much, Mm. but she's got this bellowing voice. So we used to have these little things on her desk so the teachers could visually see that she couldn't understand or she couldn't hear. And then I think it was last January, she went for a regular checkup. She'd had all of these tests, like multiple, multiple tests in multiple locations, Newcastle, Tamworth, Armidale, everywhere, on screens, on computers, you know, everything, sleep studies. And it was always exactly the same. And then she went down to get a checkup and the guy rang me. He's like, I don't know how to explain this, but your kid can hear. I was like, what do you mean she can hear? Because they'd said it's, she's never going to get it back. It's permanent and it's going to get worse. And I was like, what do you mean she can hear? He's like, no, she can hear everything. She's got no hearing loss this will not surprise everyone. I was like, has she been sexually assaulted? Like, why can't she? Is this a psychological thing? Like, he was like, no. And I was like, are you sure? Is this because her sister's been sick? He's like, no one can fake that. You have the smartest kid in the world if this is a psychological thing. And he said, and it's not viral because you would you would expect to see it go up and down. He's like, she was so consistent, so stable over such a long period of time. Your kid couldn't hear and now she can and we can't explain it scientifically. It's a miracle. I always bitched about being in the bottom 3% of stuff and this is one of two moments that I was so grateful to be in the bottom 3% of stuff. I rang everywhere. I rang every hearing place in Australia, like, you know, Westmead. I spoke to the head of ENT there. I rang Newcastle. I rang Sound Scouts. I rang Hearing Australia and no one could explain it. No one anywhere can say why she lost her hearing or that she, why she's got it back. And normally my personality would like probably think the worst and think about what happens if it happens again. I was so broken that I was like, great, let's move on. Never thought about it again. I'm like, doesn't matter. It's not going to come back. Like I just, it was very interesting to see how we respond differently in different adversities at different times because of how much we have in the tank in that moment. I had nothing left. And so then she went back to school. She just moved over there, come in, done a big slideshow for everyone. The whole school knew she couldn't hear did eight weeks, went on holidays, came back. Hey, guys, I can hear. I was like, of course they're going to think we're a hypochondriac, right? Mm. Like here we are saying we've got these two children that are really sick, but by the way, they're both completely well and normal. So it's just such a roller coaster ride. It has been like medical's been very different to the trauma, but at the same time, the same strategies, like you, you have to look at what you can control and what you can't control. You, I cannot afford to put energy into things I can't control. And once you know what you can control, you just get to work on that. We just get to work on the small steps because if you constantly take small steps, if you constantly just do one thing, you're going to keep moving the dial. And as humans, we never stay the same. No matter where we are in life right now, no matter how bad it is right now, at some point it's going to be in our rear vision mirror and we have to trust that process even though we don't know how long that time frame is going to be or what the emotional journey is along the way. It will end up in your rear vision mirror. One day you'll be talking about it like I am here and it not being so heavy and so front and centre. So I trust that whenever adversity hits now. I'm like this is a moment in time. It might be a long moment but it's a moment in time and we will get through this. We may not know how, but we will. Very wise advice. But it is making me think there's another moment in time that I think for you probably went for quite a while where you had to wait through it before you got a result, and that is POTS. Yeah, the word that people don't know about, <laughs> yeah. hey? Yeah. We did an episode on the the condition that doctors don't know about, mm. <laughs> postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Did you get that acronym right this time? 
Yes, <laughs> for everyone that goes back and listens, I did a podcast with the beautiful Marie Claire and she's the head of the foundation in Australia. I have the condition. She came on to talk about the condition and I gave the wrong words. <laughs> so it is postural, not posture. Yeah, so that all happened. You know, when I spoke about that Ironman, I said, you know, I went from triathlons to Ironman. So this was around that time that my mum had dementia. Katie had lost her hearing. Jess was incredibly ill and I was working crazy. My husband was working crazy and I was, of course, doing an Ironman. Like who, why would you not do it then, right? Like perfect timing if you can't tell from my history that physical activity is one of my coping skills. So just ticking things over, like getting up at 4.30 in the morning and doing a training session that is harder than I did the day before is one thing that really helps me cope through times of adversity. I don't expect everyone else to do that. For me, I know that, so I just stick to those rules. I'm like, at, and you'll hear this when I talk about POTS, it's the same now. I still get up at the same time every day no matter how hard it is, no matter how much my body's hurting, no matter how much I feel like I'm going to vomit or I do vomit, I go out and I move. So I'd gone up to complete a half Ironman in Kingscliff. There was actually, th- this is a bit of a proud moment, there was 33 of us from the gym that went up to do it. Um, and this is an event that less than 1% of the population do. Most people out of that 33 were doing it in teams. So you might have someone doing the swim, someone doing the cycle and another person doing the run. But there was a few of us that were doing the whole event as one. We lost one of our fellow triathletes that day. He had what they call a widow-maker heart attack and passed away on course. And that was devastating and has rocked our whole community. And I think that stress... And then coming home and I was first on scene to a car accident where someone was non-responsive two weeks later. I swear it was stress. The doctors are saying it's not, but I definitely felt like my I just couldn't keep going. I started to get a pain in my left leg and I was like, oh, there must be an injury uh, from running so far, <laughs> from doing crazy things like running half marathons before breakfast. So I went to see the physio and I said to her, look, I've got this pain in my left leg. It's not going away. It's a dull ache. It's there at night. It's mainly when I run. And she's like, okay, let's blah, blah, blah. Three weeks later, she looked me in the eyes and she said, Arles, you need you need to go and see a neurologist. This is above my pay grade. And I'm not sure you're going to get answers anytime in the next two years. And I was like, what? It's just pain in my leg. And she's like, no, it's something really serious going on. And I think we need to explore this further. So I walked out of that appointment thinking, whatever, like I have a tendinopathy or, you know, a strain in my quad or whatever it was, like it's surely it's nothing bigger. And we went and we spoke to the neurologist and they were like, maybe your brain conditions come back, which is rare. Like I think there's two or five people in the world and most are drug addicts in that scenario where it's come back because my brain condition, they things that cause it are cold and flu tablets, pregnancy and drugs. And I had neither of those. I did have cold and flu tablets and they weren't sure, but I was in the 10% of people why they didn't know why I had that brain injury. Mm. But that only lasts for four months of your life and it's meant to go away and never come back. There is a handful of people in the world that have had it come back, but very few. And so when they said that, of course, I found out who the best in the world is and I sent them a personal email. I was like, hey, how you going? I have a problem. <laughs> do you want to study me? <laughs> and he was like, send me all your details. Like, this is not normal. I, it, this is doesn't sound right. Send everything through. He was over in America at the time. And during that time, it's taken 18 months. I've had nerve conduction studies. I've had, I think, five MRIs. I've had like every, not every, but a lot of testing. And with each test, they were going in to look for a specific condition. So they've gone to look for MS. So I was processing that I might have MS. Then they're looking for hyperexcitability. Perfect name for me. 
Not a great condition to have. But I was like, yeah, that sounds like me. It wasn't that. So there was a lot of these kind of balls thrown at me that were like, if you have this condition, it could either be lifelong or life-threatening. And it kind of just was eating away and I got was getting sicker. So it had gone from my left leg to my right leg and then from both my legs to my left hand and then to my right and then up to my face. And I was waking up in the middle of the night with pins and needles and I was having pseudo seizures again and I couldn't, at the time I wasn't aware of this, but I couldn't stand up. I just knew that I was getting sick and I thought I was dying. On my 40th birthday, I couldn't have a cup of tea with the kids. I couldn't sit or stand to have a cup of tea with the kids. I didn't answer my phone. I was just thinking, I'm just like dying a slow death here. I've since worked out that postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, one of the symptoms of it is you can't stand up. <laughs> so I now it makes so much sense. But at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was postural. I didn't realize it was where my posture was that was affecting me. And so I was also exercise intolerant. I couldn't do any exercise. And that's, a, that's also a very common symptom for POTS. And I kept saying to the doctors, like, something is seriously wrong with me. And one doctor said to me, you just need to get over your childhood trauma. Oh, my God. And I looked at him and I was like, mate, this is nothing. And you, by the way, you've never asked me what my childhood trauma is. Like, you don't know, for starters, but this has nothing to do with that. And we walked out and my husband, again, legend, said, don't worry about him, let's go somewhere else. And so I needed that support at that time. But I started to, in my head, think maybe, maybe I'm broken. Like after my childhood where I spent so long trying to tell myself I'm not broken, I was there again. I'm like, I think I'm broken. I think this is my mind's been broken. Now my body's broken. And I started to think, why would my husband stay with me? Why would my kids want me as a mom? Like I can't even wash, cook, clean, stand up. I didn't go to a school event. I felt like a hypocrite. We've already described that. So by this stage, I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone because I'm like, they're going to think I'm making this stuff up. And I was so sick. I started writing letters to my daughters. I started writing letters and I started writing my story, the Bondi buses, because I was like, there's so much I want them to know and I'm not going to be around to tell them. But I'm dyslexic and the writing didn't go so well. So I heard of this guy called Sam, the podcast (laughs) butler, and I rang him, right? I rang him and I said, if anyone doesn't realize this is who we're talking and who's interviewing me today. And I said, I can't remember the exact words, Sam, but I'm pretty sure it went like, hey, I heard you do podcast stuff. If I talk, can you do the rest? (laughs) Did it go like that? Pretty close. And it was then followed by, but I've got a bunch of stuff with my brain that needs to get checked out. So <laughs> I'm not going to be able to talk to you for the next couple of months. And then I just didn't hear from you for a while. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> Who is this girl? And at the time I didn't realise he's one of the best editors in Australia. I just got his name from someone and I was like, I'm I'm just going to use this guy. Like I just need a guy to kind of edit my stuff. And then we started working together and, oh, you know, this is the end product, right? But – yeah, so and I had a I had a commercial publisher ring me during this stage and be like, we want to write your story. And similar to what we spoke about in the last episode, when they did the exploring, they said, We can't tell your story until your perpetrators die. They said there's like we because of the scenario and because I mentioned earlier that things happened overseas and they won't extradite because of it. They just said the risk is too high, but you really do need to tell your story. And so, you know, watch this space because a book might come out eventually with a bit more detail, but podcasting seemed like the way I could do it. I, I wanted my girls to know that I wanted them to know that life is hard and things happen and think everyone has a story 
everyone has a story and everyone integrates their story into their world and into their life differently and none of it is wrong and none of it is hard and no one is broken. You've done a remarkable job of doing that with this podcast, Els. But I feel like and maybe this is where you're going by bringing up the podcast. I'm assuming you still didn't know by the time we started what the hell was going on with your body, right? No, so that was a trip in itself. So I went and had all these testings in Sydney, thought I was dying, trying to work out how I was writing letters to my children. I'd closed myself off from everyone because I felt like a hypochondriac and I didn't know how they were going to receive. I had nothing good to say to anyone. I was like, I'm so sick. I don't even have any good stories anymore. Like, I, yeah, so it was it was a really dark, tough time. My husband was amazing. Again, he was absolutely amazing. He took time off work. He did everything in the household. He did all the kids. Again, for the second time in his life, he had to really step up, and my God, he did. And then I ended up in St. Vincent's in Sydney with a doctor, um, no names, and the doctor did some testing, and then he rang me and he said, I've sent you an email. You have POTS. You have these other eight things wrong with you. I'll give you a call this afternoon. I was like, okay, but can I ask you some questions about it? He's like, no, no, we'll talk this afternoon. So I checked the email. POTS isn't on there, right? It's not written on there. And so I ring the front desk. He didn't ring me. And they're like, oh, he'll ring you tomorrow. I ring again. Oh, he'll ring you next week. I ring again. She's like, I told you he would ring you. I'm like, he's just given me this diagnosis and I haven't been able to ask any questions. She's like, he will ring you. He has never rung me. He has never to this day rung me. I've had to go to other doctors and get the information for this condition that I don't know the exact statistics, but about 30% of people can end up in a wheelchair, never go back to work, never go back to school. 10% of people get their life back to the way that they were functioning before. It is a very serious debilitating condition. I'm in the, I'm going to be in that top 10%, by the way. I reckon I'm almost there. But it has such an impact. It takes... 10 years to get a diagnosis, six specialists on average to get a diagnosis for this, and just about everyone is told it's in their head when it's to do with the autonomic system. Mm. So, you know, watch this space. I've joined the board for the POTS Foundation Australia and I am 100% in the advocacy space because this is not okay and this is England and America are so far in front of us. Like they have language around this. They have diagnostic tools around it. The doctors know about it. The health professionals know about it. Ours don't know. It's not through naivety. They just don't know about it. And so everyone is getting misdiagnosed or going to like anyone out there that has been to specialist after specialist. Like you're, that waiting game is so hard. I mean, I'm there now. They've, I've just had a genetic test go over to the States and this will decrease, this will have a severe impact on our family. It is 50% genetically passed on to your kids and the mean age is 48, which gives me six more years. So I'm waiting at the moment for that test result to come back. It's super rare. I'm sure we don't have it, but like I'm right in the midst of that waiting game. Like I'm getting better. I'm getting stronger every day. Some days I can walk two blocks. Some days I can walk 5K. I can't use my lower body yet. So, you know, I can't go and ride a bike. I can't do 20 squats in the gym. I own a gym. For anyone that doesn't know and is hearing this for the first time, I own a gym and I can't do exercise. (laughs) I think I'm the only gym owner in Australia. But I can do upper body. So I can bench, I can do rows, and I can do chin-ups. So that's what I do. And I walk. You know, that moment of like, well, yes, I can dwell on all the things I can't do or I can just get to work on the things I can do and focus in on that and work really hard at that and get really good at that. And the other thing that I always do when something comes this way that I don't know about is I research, not Google, but I get the actual article. So I've read every article that I can get my hands on in the world to do with POTS. 
I got the foundation to send me stuff. I got the EPs that work in the space to send me stuff. I got the doctors to send me stuff. And I treated it like a degree because no one cares more about your life than you do. No one else does. And I want to be around for my children and I want to be available to my children. It's not about just being a shell of a human and not being able to get off the couch and not being able to have a cup of tea. I want to be available and present. I want to laugh with them. We play cards a lot because I can't do much else, but we're all getting really good at cards and now that's something they love and they come in and read to me at night. I'm in bed because I, I, you know, I'm so done with standing by then and they all come in, pile in bed and they all read to me. It's beautiful. It's just changing the lens that we're looking at life through. Who said that I have to be up in their room reading to them? Mm. Like who set that rule? Very true. Society did. <laughs> you can do whatever the hell you want and that's cool. They're going to get an experience you know, this is definitely the, the the silver lining look, but they're going to get that experience that no other kid will have gotten. They're getting it completely different. Yeah, and so mum with her dementia, the kids say all the time, everyone's like, how's that going? They're like, oh, it's just like my mum. You know, <laughs> grandma's just like mum. In fact, <laughs> grandma's a little better than mum, you know. So it's like it's just they have they just have a different view on the world and it's fabulous. And, you know, yes, where there's kids at school that don't have hair ribbons in their hair and they might be wearing blue socks instead of white socks. And I'm pretty sure it was a few years ago the photographer told me we have the grubbiest kids in the school. And I was like, you know why? Because they're outside playing with the dogs before they get on the school bus. And that would horrify many people. But in our world, the kids are happy and they're playing. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So... I feel like in terms of the, the journey element, we've, we've covered a lot of ground there, but I want to talk, well, we've got a, a few more minutes left, toolkits. We've discussed, Are you sure we have a few well, more minutes left? Four. I feel like we've been going for hours. <laughs> we, have been, we have been. <laughs> this is not two episodes. It's actually one we did in one go. But let's talk toolkits. Like we've asked you throughout toolkit stuff, but we haven't asked about the medical stuff, like especially with POTS and family, for coping, for persevering. Is there any other additional toolkit? lessons you've got? Yeah, probably a couple of things. One is briefly mention this, get your priorities straight and your values straight. Like have those conversations with your family and your kids or your partner or your loved ones or whoever it is. You know, what's really important? What does success look like to you? What means something to you in your life? And make sure you're putting your time and energy into that. We spend so much time and energy on the things that we actually don't value. And if I was to stand above and have a bird's eye view of what you're doing, would you really put your hand on your heart and say, I'm spending the time that I want, the way I want to spend it and the, on the things that matter the most? I think we all fall in that rut of just doing and not kind of doing what matters. So we've been very fortunate to have enough near-death experiences to kind of revisit that a lot and re like, you know, keep moving those posts and keep moving those posts. And, you know, we do end up in that stage of like being on that rat wheel, but we can remind ourselves of that now. And we often have really good conversations about that. You'll never get through adversity if you don't communicate with yourself and with others. So that little voice inside your head, the one of mine that tells me I'm lazy, I'm a dead shit, I'm no good that's strong and when adversity hits it's even stronger it's like I've got headphones on and that's the only noise coming my way so you know get some really good coaching counseling do some personal development work but get really clear on what those voices are in your head and how you can counteract them because your inner critic is there to serve and protect you but it does a pretty shitty job sometimes and the stronger it is and the more attacking it is the more damage it can do when you're really trying to get through something that's you know pretty tough in life with the medical, I'd say be your own case manager. 
that's something that I've learned the hard way with all of our medical. I relied on others to have my information and know the information and that's not always, they're human as well. So make sure you keep your details, make sure you're documenting stuff. I know it's a pain in the ass. I know it's the last thing you think about doing, but you just don't know when that medical is going to lay upon medical, it's going to lay upon medical. When I talk about that other condition, that sits above all of these conditions. It would explain my daughter's hearing, it explain my stroke, it explains my pots. You know, it's the king of king of conditions, but we only got there because we've gone through the layers and and I've had to put those pieces together for the doctors because that specialist doesn't talk to this specialist, doesn't talk to that specialist. So, you know, be your own case manager. And the last one that I'd probably talk about is it's one of my favourite metaphors and it's the mountain. And like I like to think about your toolbox as it sits within the mountain. So a mountain is solid on the earth, right? It's it's unwavering. It's never moving. It is one solid block. And if you think about your favorite mountain that you've ever seen and picture that being your mountain and inside that mountain is all your strategies that you've learned along the way that help you feel grounded, anchored, resilient. You know, you don't become resilient overnight. You become resilient because you've had adversity. Companies become resilient because they've had adversity because they have people in place that have experienced or something happens and they have to man up. So, you know, it's the magic that happens from going through stuff, from living the full human experience. We gain knowledge, we gain skills, they sit inside our mountain. Now that mountain has everything around it changing. The wind, the seasons, snow comes and goes, trees lose their leaves, animals come and go, tourists come and go, people comment on the mountain. Some people say it's a crappy mountain. Other people say it's the most beautiful mountain they've ever seen. But it doesn't move and it stays solid. And so know that you have that to your core. You may not be able to name your five strategies for you that you use in adversity or in sleep, but you have them and learn to know what sits inside your mountain because it's going to be your best asset. Your mindset sits in there. Your toolbox sits in there. Your life experience, having done hard stuff before, sits in there. You haven't gotten here today by not making it through it. You know, so I think that's something that I always think about is my mountain and it sits there and I have all of these fabulous stuff and it's so full and it's so solid and it's so anchored and that I can always come back to that. And and when all else fails, I breathe and imagine that and embrace that. I imagine my body becoming that mountain and the world changes around me, but I'm okay and I'll get through. That's some really positive, actionable stuff that I think will be helpful to a lot of people listening else. That's been a lot of great tips on top of a very intense set of stories. And I guess the one thing I want to add to that mountain analogy is inside my mountain are all my people. So everyone that has had a conversation with me, connected in, helped, supported, listened, held my hand, sat with me and had a beer while I'm crying, come to funerals with me, all of those things you're inside my mountain too. And I just, I love wholeheartedly everyone that's in my world and thank you for being you and I hope you all can go and shine your light. That's really beautifully said, Else. There's a lot of lessons there, a lot of story there as well. I think it's worth probably for a few people at least listening again because there's a lot to take out of that <laughs> I one. I I think everyone's not going to want to hear my voice again after nah, this. <laughs> we hear it plenty in the other podcast, Else. What are you talking about? That's true. But you know what we do at the end of this podcast and- <laughs> <laughs> You're making a face. Is that, that you didn't re- think about the, the wrap-up question? Yeah. How can I forget? Too bad. Oh. Here we go. You, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to edit out any pause. 
What or who in this life truly makes you belly laugh? I'm glad people can't see the shock on my face. I can make it easier for you in a way. Not including family and friends. Like, Oh, no, I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you my favourite story, okay? It is my family and she's going to kill me, but it's definitely being told at her 21st. One of those moments when my daughter was really sick, it's probably the second most sickest she's been. My husband took her to Westmead because we were like, let's split, divide and conquer. Never again am I ever doing that because I freaked out not being near her when she was having treatment. Didn't know that at the time. So he's taken... Just to Sydney to have treatment and she was incredibly that was the year that her skin split and that she was just so unwell she couldn't even get off the kitchen floor most days and I was at home with the other two and so I drove home one night and all of our chooks were dead right 14 of our chooks were just dead on the ground it was pouring with rain supposedly a quoll had gotten in and like our chooks are like family pets right so I was pretty upset and I was thinking oh my god this is when you need your husband like I do not want to get rid of these chooks Anyway, get inside. The kids go upstairs. I'm going to meet my mate at the pub. Big shout out to Wardy, um, <laughs> if you remember this story. And I like yell up the stairs. I'm like, hey, guys, let's go grab a jumper. And one of my daughters is like, can't find my jumper, can't find my jumper. I go upstairs and I walk into a room and there's this cup underneath her bed with two dead fish in it. And I was like, what is that? And the two girls come in and I like, don't know, mum. I was like looking at it and I'm thinking, what is that? And I pick it up. Definitely two dead fish, right, in a blue plastic cup full of water. We have a fish tank. So I go downstairs. I'm like, they're our fish. No, they're not our fish. So I go and sit on the kitchen bench. I reckon I stared at it for a good 20 minutes because I'm like, logistically, how did someone get two fish into my house without me knowing? So I ring Flinny at the hospital and I'm like, Flinny, can you please ask Jess whether she knows anything about two dead fish? She's like, Never, don't know, mum, don't know. And Flinny goes, remember your sis, like our sister-in-law Shay, remember Shay was going to drop off a present? And I was like, she did not drop off two dead fish under the bed. And Flynnie's like, just ring her and check. I'm like, mate, there's no way. There's no way she would drop off two, two Even if they were alive, she wouldn't put them up there. So, of course, I rang her and I was like, hey, awkward question. Did you happen to drop two fish off at our house in a cup? She's like, no. Couldn't get an answer. So, we're driving to the pub for dinner to meet my mate, Wardy. We get to the pub. We're having dinners, telling her this story. No one knew. Everyone's like coming up with ideas. No one could work it out. How do you get two fish home, right, without a parent noticing? Go to the toilet with my two kids. I hear this little voice come over the stall. Mom, how do animals die? So, I knew, right? I was like this. I said, do you mean fish? No, no, like how do cows die? I was like, blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, how do giraffes die? (laughs) I was like, blah, blah, blah. How do other animals die? Anyway, so I knew. So when we got home, I was like, sit on the end of the bed. And I was like, you know, talk to me. Obviously, these fish belong to you. Like, it's okay. And at this stage, I remembered I'd been to the pet shop two days earlier for Jess because she wanted a rat. So not my choice of animal, but when your kid is that sick, you're like, of course you can have a rat. You can have five. (laughs) Would you like me to get your breeding ground? So I remembered being at the pet shop. So I was like, the fish must have come from the pet shop. I was like, mate, just let me know, like, what happened? She's like, started crying. And she's like, I don't know, mum. And I was like, well, it's a good thing the pet shop has cameras because we're just, oh, the, the tears, right? The <laughs> sobbing. She's like, but I didn't do it. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, it's okay. We'll just go look at the cameras tomorrow. It's not too late to tell me, I didn't, I didn't, mum, I didn't. But what if, what if I, what if you go in and the camera shows me? looking at the fish tank and putting my hand in and pulling out a fish. And I was like, well, it won't show that if you didn't take them. It's okay. You can just tell me. And she's like, 
it gets better, Sam. It gets better. And she goes, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And I was like, oh. And then she cries even more. She's like, what if it shows me putting my hand in twice and getting two, two fish, but I, I, didn't, I didn't do it, Mom. I didn't do it. And I was like, oh, my God, this kid is like, <laughs> like, come on, just tell me the truth. I was like, mate, it, it's not going to show that, but it's not too late to tell the truth. Like, just be honest with me. And she's like, no, what if it shows me putting the fish in my school pocket? <laughs> Because I realised that they weren't moving. And I burst out laughing by this stage. I was like, I could not keep a straight face. And I was like, honey, just tell me. And she's like, I just wanted to pat them. I just, just was patting the rat and I just wanted to pat the fish, but they stopped moving. I didn't know what to do. And I, so I came home and put them in water and then they didn't move even more. And, and I just, I didn't have, I couldn't tell you. And I was like, okay, let's get your pocket money and take it down to the pet shop, as every parent does, take it down to the pet shop with a little note to say, I'm sorry. The story's not over yet. So we go down to the pet shop. I ring the pet shop and I'm like, hey, so this happened and I'm really sorry that we killed your fish, but we're coming in and, you know, it's a bit of a sensitive time in our family. So just wanted to give you the heads up and he's laughing. He's like, it's totally fine. She comes in. She's holding this note so tightly. I'm surprised it didn't rip. And she gives it to him and runs. <laughs> Half a block up. I had to run up and get her and carry her back and plonk her down in front of the pet shop guy. And she says, sorry, and goes again. And this time she makes it a block up the street. So I'm like running after her. I grab her. I have her over my shoulder and I'm carrying her back to the pet shop. And he says, which fish tank was it? I just want to explain to you why they died. And she points at the cheapest fish in the whole fish shop. And goes, it was in there. I was like, my job is done. Like, I'm opting out of parenting now. Like, it definitely wasn't. It was the most expensive fish. I was like, this is my job done. That's, that's, <laughs> look, that's fascinating. Look, Alice, really appreciate you sharing that story. I'm sure uh, in future episodes, we're still going to hear little bits more from you. Like, other things, when you relate to a guest, you'll drop a bit more because there's no way we covered. Like even 50% of your story, I reckon. There's like nah. so many other things in there. But Lots more fun things, right? Oh. Like lots more fun things. I'll make sure I like mention all the funny moments. <laughs> but really want to say thank you on behalf of myself and the audience for, for sharing your story because I know you'll say, oh, you know, I've told it before. I'm used to it. I want to share it. I'm doing it for, a, you know, to get the message out there. But it's still a very vulnerable, powerful thing to do. So thank you. Thank you. It was, I would say that, but I also am going to admit that I was really nervous, really, really worried about coming on. And I guess I tell people bits of my story, but never all of it. And very few people have actually heard that beginning part and actually how it was. So I was really nervous and it's a really good experience for me to realize what the guests go through every time they get on here. Like it is not easy telling your story. Well, it wasn't easy for me. So thank you everyone for that's still with us, <laughs> that's still hanging in there. Thank you for um for hanging in there with us. And let's just hope that this conversation moves the dial for someone else, helps someone else, or makes creates change in Australia where <laughs> people get charged for what they do, mm. or we don't have to worry about extraditing unless it's a murder. You know, if this conversation changes some things at a at a higher level, a policy level, then God, it was it was a hundred percent worth it. But it's also worth it if it's helped one person. Just one. If one person's taking something away, I'd do it every day of the week. Good on you, Alice. Thank you, everyone, who is still here with us at the end of these two episodes. As I mentioned in the beginning, I was really <laughs> nervous, and that's an understatement, to release this. I had to ask myself, why? What do I want people to gain from this? 
I spoke about my mission in life is to reduce and hopefully one day stop family violence in this country. My reason for releasing this second episode was a little different. My hope is that through hearing this story, you might feel less alone. In my travels, I've heard so many people say that they are not good enough or that they compare themselves to others, the person next to them, their neighbours, their work colleagues. Each of us have our own story, our own demons, fears and shame. All of us make mistakes and have times in our lives that we don't know how we're going to keep trudging forwards. I hope that you were able to find one piece of hope or one strategy that you can tuck away for a rainy day throughout this last hour. I believe that by telling my story to one person or hundreds of people or thousands of people like on this podcast, that we can start to build human connection and shared experience. I hope everyone has an awesome week and I'll be back next week talking to the CEO of Life Ed New South Wales, aka Healthy Harold. Yep, that's right. The lovable giraffe, caring and loyal friend and passionate advocate for health and safety of all Aussie children and their families. So tune in next Monday and have an awesome week. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.